Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Uh, good, good evening and welcome to tonight's program of the Commonwealth Club. The club can be found uh, on the internet at commonwealthclub.org. Um, I'd like to introduce you to our distinguished guest. Um, Dr. Ari Karman is one of Israel's foremost experts on political reform. In 1991, he founded the Israel Doc- Democracy Institute to strengthen the structural and normative foundations of Israeli democracy. Under his leadership, um, the institute has become a leading think tank with a reputation among policymakers for nonpartisanship, professionalism, and actionable policy recommendations. Currently, Ari is a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution and is the author of a new book, Building Democracy on Sand, Israel Without a Constitution. Um, we'd, let's welcome to the Commonwealth Club, um, Ari Carmen. Thank you very much. Um, Ari, your, your, your book is uh, timely, and it's, and it's also historical. You get into uh, the reasons uh, that Israel does not have a constitution. And I, th- I think I'd love to have you start at the beginning, because when I think about Israel, I don't think of its lack of a constitution, but I was surprised, yeah, it doesn't have a constitution, just like Saudi Arabia, Canada, New Zealand, a few other countries. It's surprising that it, it, it doesn't have a constitution. Can you talk about why it doesn't and why maybe that's so unusual or maybe not so unusual? Well, <clears throat> um, the whole motivation to write the book, in fact, the whole mo- my motivation to found the Israel Democracy Institute, stemmed from the fact uh, that I uh, am convinced that Israel is the, uh, the very first place where the Jewish people exercise its right for self-determination after 2,000 years without. So this is the first time in the past 72 years in which um, we you know, um, have taken responsibility to political sovereignty that we did not have. So the short answer to your uh, um, question is, our founding fathers were not like uh, those who wrote the Federalist Papers. Our founding fathers did not have, um, uh, they were not connected to the processes in, in Europe that led through from the Westphalia Treaty through uh, the 20th century the founding of modern sovereignty, modern democracy, and so forth. The Zionist revolution, which uh, led to the founding of the State of Israel, was meant initially to gather the Jews from all the different places and recreate a nation. Concepts such as statehood or state have not been in the minds of the founding fathers. Having said that, and again, there are many reasons why and, and so on and so forth, However, um, in uh, May 1948, um, the state was declared and when the last British soldier left Israel. And on May 15th, 1948, the founding father of Israel, David Ben-Gurion, read the Declaration of Independence, the last cr- clause of which includes a, a paragraph that states that by October 1949, Israel will have a constitution. And the first elections held in Israel, January 1949, were for a constitutional assembly. However, Ben-Gurion, at that juncture, historical juncture, he did not want a constitution. And in fact, he compelled this group of 120 members that represented different uh, factions and parties to declare itself to be a parliament. And from that point on, um, we have had a parliament now. 
Two years afterwards, uh, the Knesset has put together a committee that decided after deliberations that a constitution will be framed step by step by means of uh, developing what they called um, basic laws. The fact of the matter is that the, the very first basic law was enacted five or six years thereafter, and between 1956-7 through 1992, 11 basic laws have been enacted. Um, two are the beginning of a Bill of Rights. So bottom line, we do not have a Bill of Rights. We do not have a Constitution. The basic laws that uh, formally provides the Constitutional Foundation for Israel, they do not do so because um, they have not been combined. Some uh, basic laws could be modified or changed with a simple majority. Uh, so there, th this is where we are. Well, re reading your book, I was surprised to learn, um, I mean, David Ben-Gurion is a mythical figure in, in Israel's history, but I was surprised to learn, um, you mentioned the Bill of Rights, that he was asked about why isn't there a Bill of Rights. This is in the 1950s. He said, Bill of Rights, there should be a bill of essentially like, you know, obligation, or what was yeah, the word he used? Yeah, yeah. Something, th this is a quotation from uh, uh, President Shamgar. Shamgar was the president of the Supreme Court. And he was associated with my institute when we tried to frame a constitution. And he quoted Ben-Gurion in saying it. You see, this is part of uh, the Jewish heritage, the Jewish uh, legacy, commitment, um, duties, uh, obligations, and so forth. So, uh, yeah, that's what, that's what he uh, said. But in, in a way, I, I'd like to take it back to your starting the, uh, the institute. You started the institute in 1991, I believe, right? Right. And the whole idea, from what I can tell reading the book and reading about, you know, doings, is that you wanted to bring a constitution to the state of Israel. That was one of your stated goals. Yeah. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. Very true. In fact, um, framing a constitution was the flagship of, um, um, of my, my institute. Um, and... In many respects, again, this was part of the motivation, my motivation to write the book. I felt very strongly that, um, or let me put it this way, the first jubilee, the first 50 years since the founding of the state with Ben-Gurion, Israel did tremendous achievements in what I call uh, the hardware. You know, where we established institutions, we have uh, procedures, we have elections and, and whatnot. But the software have not been there. And um, we, at the Institute, defined Israeli democracy as a formal democracy, not substantive democracy. And a constitution is not just ground rules shared by the collective. It is not just what political scientists would call consensual underpinning. It is a, an educational document. It is an educational document that once you internalize its meanings, particularly the one por portion of which we miss, Bill of Rights, you build um, a civil society which uh, will, will have grown on the values of protecting freedom, freedoms, and, and, uh, and so on and so forth. And the main thing in the case of Israel is the definition of freedom of and freedom from religion that we never discussed it. In many respects, I, I'm reminded of the role of slavery among your founding fathers. It took so many decades and civil war to deal with this issue. 
that uh, was denied by the, your founding fathers. The same thing happened with us. So, uh, yeah, uh, I truly, I believe, I still believe, even though my friends call me a chronic optimist, that this, is, this document is extremely necessary. So it, it has become the flagship of the Institute. I can make a note to what we see today. It is 7 o'clock, it is 5 a.m. in Israel. Five hours ago, our Knesset decided to go for the third time for a third round of election. One of the reasons, and it has to do with the lack of a constitution. You see, um, in, the, in, the 19, uh, in the 1990s, the system, the, our electoral system, has been changed with a simple majority. And from uh, um, voting in the ballots for political parties with one ballot, it was, you know, direct election of the prime minister. But this amendment was achieved with a simple majority of even less than 61, namely one over 50 percent of the member of the Knesset, just to let you to show you how uh, vulnerable uh, the foundation is. Well, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because every story I saw today, you, you mentioned the, the midnight deadline. Yeah. Every story I saw today did not mention the Constitution. Ben, Benny, Benny Gantz did not blame the, the lack of a Constitution. Netanyahu did not blame it. It doesn't come up in news stories, but you're, you're contextualizing and saying there is a kind of hidden but not so hidden element to this. Well, you know, um, the analysis, we can go into that. That's very complicated the current political scene and uh, what is the role of this party or that party, this leader or that leader, which is, this is what, what you hear on the news all the time, particularly our Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, who has been indicted a couple of weeks ago. I'm trying to delve down deep and, and find what are the deeper uh, reasons, what are the, the foundations for the reality that we found ourselves in, and and while the lack of a constitution is not the single reason for the current crisis, in my view, it is one of the major reasons for, for the lack thereof. I can elaborate further. You know, it is not just uh, the issue of elections, the issue of uh, uh, representation by the people. Part of the political discourse these days that has a lot to do with the current political culture is... The, uh, the fact that the, our Supreme Court and all the other um, um, law enforcement agencies have been under attack by the supporters of Netanyahu. This has never been the case before. So it just underscored the point that I shared with you before, namely that uh, we, we do not have this document as, as an educational uh, document to prepare um, the civil society or whatever. Yeah, I think I think these are really important points. And if I, if you don't mind me saying, um, you mentioned before we came on stage that you have a, an opinion piece in the New York Times tomorrow. Yeah, I, I assume you'll del it delves into some of these same issues. Yeah, the title of uh, the title that I gave, you never know what the editor will do with it. Is uh, Israeli democracy under siege? And I asked uh, Adam that as soon as we have, and George, as soon as we have the link, uh, they will share it with you and, and uh, some other people who are associated with the club. So rest assured that you will get uh, this piece.
Well, maybe this is in your op-ed, but maybe it's not. And, and I, I want to ask it though, 1991 till now, that's t more than 20 years that you've been trying to, um, you know, in, in initiate a constitution. Now in those 20 years, I'm sure you've had dealings with prime ministers and presidents and, you know, all level of political, um, you know, hierarchy. What has been your experience say with, um, you know, Netanyahu or Benny Gantz or others that, and, and how does that experience in a sense embody your frustration, but maybe also your hope? Well, listen, I don't want to go to get personal, but yeah, right. Um, first of all, 1991 uh, until today, it's almost uh, 29 years, 27 yeah. years. So it's a lo long time. And um, in fact, throughout these years, uh, we, we, we were in contact with all the prime ministers who were in office. Let me backtrack and say something again, very fundamental. In my vision, when I um, founded the Institute, I knew that it, the following reality. The political agenda, the political, cultural, social agenda of the state of Israel is the most loaded agenda compared with any other democracy. On the top of this agenda, of course, we have uh, the issue of, uh, of survival, the conflict with our neighbors. Then there is an issue, major issue, uh, in which, which takes a major part in my book, the crisis of identity or the conflict of identities. Uh, Israel defined itself to be Jewish and democratic. The universalistic values and the particularistic values. Who defines our Jewishness is a major point of controversy. Now, because of the heavily loaded agenda, our elected officials and uh, appointed officials, by and large, are very busy with the here and now. Very little thought is devoted. I'm talking about the political arena. In other arenas, Israel has, has done tremendously. Um, but uh, more of, uh, most of the th issues on the political agenda is, you know, next to the nose, the here and now. Very little, th very little thought has been invested mid and long term, among other things, because of the diversity. So this was the mission of IDI. We took upon ourselves to uh, try to offer, to suggest serious proposals for reform for, for the mid and long term. Um, now, um, we had prime ministers who would listen to us. Uh, Shamir was the prime minister when I started, and we shared the view with Shamir to try to oppose the changing of the electoral system. Hmm. Now, ironically, the, the two who led, who led to, to this uh, uh, change were uh, the late Rabin and, and Netanyahu. Um, and then all the, the others, you know, we've been in contact with. I can say to you about Netanyahu, um, and then we'll go get off the personal stuff, uh, Netanyahu, in, in the initial days of the Institute, Netanyahu appreciated very much uh, our effort. Netanyahu is a man of the book. He reads. And um, for one of, the, one of the major projects in the late 1990s, I started it when Rabin was prime minister, was the, the Israel's major economic conference in which the prime minister always had the last session. Netanyahu, you know, held the office of Minister of Finance under Sharon. So there were three consecutive conferences that I did with him, and it was very successful. Um, 
what happened, I guess, in the last decade, uh, which is very problematic, is something that you find in many other democracies these days, the development of different factors that lead to uh, autocracy at the expense of democracy. And I leave it at that. The rest is in my article. Okay, that's the... You're sort of like a Netflix movie that teases and asks people you got it. <laughs> to, to watch. Uh, we'll, we'll watch for that or, re- or read it in the New York Times. Okay. Uh, I, I should remind people here and also listening that they can read about it in your book. Uh, yeah. I, I, I don't know that Netanyahu's actually specifically mentioned in the book. But, no, he's not. Um, but no. You, do, you do mention um, people who are you know, well-known well and some not, not so well-known. Yeah. Um, well... I, I want to play, in a sense, devil's advocate here because you're you're still um, vying for a constitution in Israel, of course. Um, what what happens if Israel does not get a constitution? Is is it a kind of deal breaker for Israel's security and its kind of identity? We can get into those issues later, but is it really a, a, a deal breaker, or is it something that okay, if it doesn't have a constitution like Canada, like New Zealand, it can go on and you know um, act as a viable democracy, et cetera, et cetera. You know, you mentioned the two exclusive countries that came from uh, the British Dominion. Uh, they, they don't have it. I don't think that it's true for Canada. Canada does have, a, you know, a very solid Bill of Rights uh, that, that they adhere to. And in fact, um, how the, I forgot how they call it. Um, this used to be an example, a model for us. I don't. I know. I know very little about New Zealand. But let me go uh, respond to your question in in, in depth. I think that one of the major challenges for Israeli society is integration. You see, we are now seventy one, seventy two years after the founding of the state. I said that the, the, the political agenda of the state of Israel is the, the most heavily loaded. There is another thing that exemplifies Israel, that really differentiates between us and others. And this is the extremely exponential pace in which our society has been changing. In 1949, in 1948, when the state was founded, there were 800 and 803,000 uh, inhabitants, including 13% Arabs. 71 years ago. Today, we are over 9 million. If at the beginning, in the first days of the state, this Israeli collective was pretty homogeneous. 85% of the Jews were what we call Ashkenazi Jews, namely those who came from uh, Europe. Only 15% came from uh, um, Asia, Africa. The scenery today is totally different. There isn't a majority. Israel is a patches of minorities. So the most important thing is integration. Uh, George Schultz, my uh, protege, used to cite uh, Ronald Reagan, shining city on the hill. Israel could have become a shining city uh, on the hill, but in order for Israel to, to do it, the very important, the very first important thing is to find common denominators and overcome the diversity, even though diversity is terrific. Um, in America, I hear a lot about, let's celebrate diversity. But the, 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 the downside of it is that you are on a slip slope, slip slope to, you know, to slip down to divisiveness. 
And to a large extent, this is what we have been facing that is happening in Israel. Now, what is the role of the Constitution here? I think, and this is what I, we try to do, to, to, to put together what we call a Constitution by consent. In other words, to deal with those elements that, that um, engender the, the conflicts within us and try to deal with this and, and uh, instill um, uh, pluralism. Um, to give you one example, which is the main thesis, the main theme of my book, uh, and this is the tension between religion and politics uh, in Israel. Because we do not have it, because we do not have the kind of uh, pluralism or, I'd say, um, multicultural approach to, uh, to identity, uh, we have been facing what I call uh, the, the monopoly of the orthodoxy, orthodox Jews. The, the two major de denominations in the United States are the conservative and reform Jews. They are not legitimized in Israel, and it's a very troubling thing. In other words, uh, what you call here religious pluralism does not exist in Israel. I have to say, I grew up, um, I never paid attention to this. It was so uh, clear to, to me. It's a major problem. It is not just to recognize other denominations. It is to recognize and legitimize different approaches to define our identity. And I think that the deliberations over a constitution and its content and substance could lead and should lead to the kind of fair understanding. And I can say one other thing. I'm not pessimistic. Um, during all the years uh, at Israel Democracy Institute, we ran endless dialogues, roundtables, and we brought together people who come from really different ends of of the spectrum, the political, the cultural. And time and again, when you, when you sit around one round table, adversaries, you overcome it. You do not end up, you know, having the same views, but at least you create the empathy, you create tolerance, you create what is so badly needed in, in our midst. Now, in my book, I try to be uh, critical to um, what I call, uh, that's the main thesis, I guess, of my book, um, um, the emergence of a religious counter-revolution in the midst of the Zionist secular revolution. And that's a major, a major issue. Um, let me say a few words about it. Please, yeah, please. Um, you see, the Jewish nation is the only nation defined by religion. You don't have any other nation defined by religion. So the link between uh, the national identity and is tightly linked with, re with religions like Gordian Knot. Our founding fathers rebelled against it. They were very secular in their minds, and they wanted to uh, set the foundation to what they call new Jewish society, and they portrayed the new Jew who will be secular. And in fact, until the founding of the state, um, we had phenomenal creative um, celebrations like the holidays. Uh, they poured secular content 
to religious, uh, uh, religious holidays, and on and on and on. But it, not, it did not ho- uh, held waters because we never discussed the ramifications of freedom of and freedom from. And uh, uh, it's very, very interesting. In the early 1950s, um, Ben-Gurion relinquished, gave up to the ultra-Orthodox. He said, well, they asked that 400 uh, genius um, rabbinical students will be exempted from our army service. As you know, in Israel, it's, it's compulsory. And Ben-Gurion said, sure. In several decades, there will be no religious people in Israel. So this was the vision. Not only do we have religion, but the, 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 the emergence of, uh, of what I call the uh, religious counter-revolution is a major, major issue that tears Israel apart. Um, of course, one of the areas that you see after the 67 war, and I mention it in my book, uh, I can say it here again, you know, Israel is the only democracy that does not have borders. And borders on our east side, borders is not just a geographical line. Borders define identity. So there is a conflict over the issue of the territories that Israel has occupied now for for 52 years. And this is part of of the conflict. Now, in 1967, um, you know, the fundamental messianic ideas of the uh, religious Zionists uh, erupted. I don't say that all of them are of the same color, but, but I think that this is one of the major issues that characterizes uh, what I call the conflict of identities. Yeah, it's interesting that you, you write about that and um, equate it to, in, in some cases, to other countries. Um, you quote, for example, Samuel P. Huntington, and um, right. I think it's Francis, Francis, Francis Fukuyama, but a lot, a, lot, a lot of your premise rests on the idea that if there was a constitution, in a sense, and there was a bigger, um, in a sense, um, sense of identity, like that, that, would, that would, in a sense, um, create a, a more... Um... Let, let, let me qualify it. Yeah, please. Okay? Let me qualify it. Please. I think that the main message that I hope to convey in my book is that Israel is still in its genesis phase. We still are in a very preliminary phase of being after 2,000 years. And uh, I personally feel very fortunate to have been born into that generation that that carry the burden of defining the future. Hmm. So I don't expect, you know, that anything uh, that pertains to the the, uh, differences and diversity of identities will be resolved uh, in one generation or two generations. It definitely will not happen in my lifetime. In fact, it's a major, major challenge. Uh, so um, my hope is that the younger generation will internalize it. I wrote in the introduction that I was born in the early 1940s, so I have one foot in history and the other foot after the founding of the state. 1948 is really a seam, a major, major seam in Jewish history. On the one end, uh, the 2,000 years of exile without uh, political uh, uh, responsibility to political sovereignty. On the other side, we created, supposedly we created a sovereignty. I'll say a word about it in a minute. 
And I, I think that I and my generation, we appreciate the fact that we are on that scene. Our son, our sons and grandchildren are very close to that scene, you know, uh, cognitively. But they, they don't realize. I mean, they are born to the Hebrew language, which was a miracle. Revival of the, of the Hebrew language. Imagine after 2,000 years, a passive language has been re, uh, revived. Children born here, for them, if speaking English is so natural. The same is in Israel. But our children don't appreciate the fact that this is a novelty in our history, number one. Number two, uh, the, f- the very fact that we are still diversified uh, is something that, that we don't know to celebrate because Israel has become so modern in so, in so many respects. So it is a mission, and it is an ongoing mission. I don't foresee in the horizon, uh, even though in that piece that you mentioned at the end I wrote, may be the trauma of the current uh, events will open the eyes of our leadership to move forward with, with the Constitution because the text is already there. But let's say I don't ex- expect that it may happen. But you see, th- there is this challenge that we have to learn to live with. And I think that um, the main thing to me is to appreciate the fact that this is today in, in the in the the end of the second decade of the 21st century, we're just in the middle of the third generation since the founding of the state. So historically speaking, it's a huge task that is ahead of us. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now back to our program. Uh, I'm going to get to uh, at least one of the questions we have from the audience. Um, uh, it, it's, a, it's a question related to the, um, a Palestinian state and from Israel's perspective. And, and um, the question is how a new constitution would would derive the country's borders, citizenship, minority rights. I know you mentioned um, you know, uh, a lot of polls related to Arab citizens of Israel in your book. Um, I well, yeah. let me make it very clear. Um, the the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is a major issue. I don't deal with this. I do not deal with this. Uh, it really deserves uh, attention and thought and uh, you know, analysis. And in fact, I have, I'm afraid to say that this conflict has blurred the importance of the domestic uh, um, issue, the, the, what I call the, the identity conflict. Now... Uh, having said that, um, 20% of Israelis are Arabs, Palestinian Arabs who are citizens. I'm not talking about those who live uh, behind the green line in the occupied territories. I have my own opinions, but they do not belong to, to the book that I wrote. But Israeli Arabs are part and parcel of our society. They are part and par- and, and it's very interesting, and I can say in one word... Um, from the beginning, you know, it, it, there is a major dilemma. 
you have in our midst um, citizens of the state of Israel whose state is fighting against their nation. I can say to you that in the past two decades, maybe more, there have been two competing processes, uh, what we call Israeliness and Palestinianness. The Israeliness has overcome, and it's clear mainly among the young generation of Israeli Arabs, Israeli Palestinian Israelis, that they appreciate their citizenship in the state of Israel. I heard it from many. They, of course, do not agree. They're not in agreement with the policies of the government. So are many Jews, and they're not in agreement with the policies of the government. But this is a democratically elected government. So uh, we used to raise these and other voices in democratic menace. But note, and that's very, very important for me to convey to whoever asks about it, Israeli Arabs have been integrated in Israeli society. Let me substantiate it, uh, substantiate it by, by, by giving you some numbers. Um, the number of children in, per family, okay, the birth rate. And in, in my book, I refer to four different youngsters, uh, you know, an ultra-Orthodox, uh, a religious Zionist, a secular, and an Arab. Four completely different cultures in Israel. Now, the average ultra-Orthodox family, they have today 6.4 children. Five years ago, it was 7.2, so there is, it is on the decline. In uh, what we call the national religious uh, families, they're not the ultra-Orthodox, it is on something like 4.2 children per family. In the Arab, Israeli Arab sector, it's getting down to close to three. And this, among secular Israelis, 2.8. And what happened within the um, Arab-Israeli sector, you know, uh, in IDI, in the Israel Democracy Institute, we dealt with this. And the, and the vision was, the strategy was to help create a middle class, namely invest in their education, invest in uh, absorbing them in, uh, in, the, um, you know, in the labor market. And as a result, you know, um, they developed a middle class. Today, for instance, um, Arab women participate in the, in the labor force. In the past, um, there was a barrier. Uh, let's say that um, very few Israeli companies would hire Israeli Arab. That's a non-issue anymore. Today, there are more uh, nurses and in the uh, pharmaceutical industry, more Arabs than Jews in, in those industries. There are two um, hospitals that the directors of are Israeli Arabs. So I think that this is one of the successes. I didn't answer you about uh, the, the, the Palestinians behind the Green Line, but as I said... Um, my, uh, I've been occupied mostly with the issue of integrating within Israeli society. Well, I, I, um, one, one of the, one of the, um, one legislation that came out last year that was very controversial was this idea of, um, demoting as it were the Arab, Arab language. It was not a, they, it went from an official language to a recognized language, I believe. 
Um, yeah, okay. Uh, here I can make a very clear uh, comment, and I wrote about it. Um, the idea of enacting a basic law of the na Jewish nationhood came to the fore in 2008. From day one, I fought against it. I fought against it. I thought that this is something that runs against the fundamental premises of our Declaration of Independence. In our in Declaration of Independence, it states very clearly that there will be no discrimination, regardless of gender, of nationality, of whatever. I mean, all the right things have been stated there. And in fact, uh, what we call today Jewish and democratic, the, the ground was laid there. But it was clear that the universalistic values are a major thing. And now this bill, uh, you know, uh, went along and it was enacted as a basic law, unfortunately. So here is my, my attitude toward this bill, which, yeah, it does undermine the idea of equality uh, in Israel, but it undermines other things as well. I ask myself, this bill is an answer to what question? In two basic laws, Israel has been defined as Jewish and democratic. In the Declaration of Independence, we declared whom we are. All the, the, the insignia, we have a flag, we have a hymn, we have a, all the holidays, everything, under, underscore the fact that this is a Jewish and democratic state. My conclusion, and of course those in the right end of the political event don't like what I, what I say, this is a mirror image of the demand by this falling government from the Palestinians to recognize the Jewish identity of the state of Israel, which is ridiculous. Do we know, do we need someone who is not part of us to define our identity? Are you Americans ask someone to define your identity as a precondition for, you know, to create diplomatic relationship? So how can I explain it? Well, my explanation is, is, is as follows. I think that this is one of the signs of the fact that we are losing our self-confidence. Uh, maintaining, carrying the burdens of democratic values on the one hand and dealing with, with enemies around us, thinking what is the real solution to it, meaning, which is obviously dialogue and seeking some sort of peace w with them, uh, would be the right direction, but it takes a lot of self-confidence to doing it. And we have had it in many governments, including in the past five decades in which we've occupied the territories. Unfortunately, recently, I mean recently, the couple of, last couple of decades, I've seen a deteriorating, deterioration of it. And one of the signs is this, this, uh, this bill. Now, there is a, an issue here. Uh, there, there, was, there have been a number of appeals to the Supreme Court to, uh, um, uh, to, to declare this, you know, to, um, uh, how do you call it? Declare null and void? Judicial or? review, yeah. you know, to review it. Yeah. Now, the, uh, and, and, and the, the court has refrained from dealing with this. It's like playing with fire. Why? Because um, a basic law is something that is above, it's a constitutional uh, law, and, and supposedly 
the court cannot review it. Um, I have argued, and I wrote about it, and some of my colleagues have argued in different ways, that it is the obligation of the Supreme Court to deal with this vis-a-vis the Declaration of Independence. To what extent it contradicts what is stated in the Declaration of Independence. So I gave you a long answer to... Uh, I, pre- I appreciate that long answer, and I think our audience does, and hopefully people listening will appreciate your long answer, especially in a society where short answers are often the rule, rule of law, no pun intended. Yeah. Um, we welcome your, your thoughtful comments there. Um, there there's, a, there's, a, there's a lot to be said in, 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 um, you know, in fo- follow-up to your answers. Um, there are also a lot of questions, though, and, and we have from the audience some, even some basic questions that if you don't mind addressing, um, perhaps in the relation to your work with the IDI, perhaps in your relation just as an Israeli citizen, uh, one question, I, 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 I don't know the answer to this. Do, do Arab-Israeli young men serve in the IDF? No. Oh, they do not. Okay. No. Yeah. No. No. But and, uh, even though it is uh, um, uh, compulsory and, and they have to adhere to, uh, to the law, but from day one it was clear that it was a big mistake to do it. Having said that, there is a very first of all, uh, there are two non-Jewish sectors that are part of uh, uh, the Arab uh, segment, the Druze have served in the Israeli army since day one, and the Bedouins, the nomads. But there is another phenomenon that has been growing in the past 15, 20 years. And this is a civil service, or if you want what you would call Peace Corps. Uh, Israel called uh, on a voluntary basis for young people to volunteer for uh, whatever work to be, to be done uh, in hospitals, in their own communities, and there's been a growing number of young Arabs that, like ultra-Orthodox and like women from the other Orthodox communities that, that you know, uh, responded to this call. And this, uh, it's not exponentially um, a revolutionary manner, but very slowly this affected the very interesting change. Well, segues into another question from the audience. What role did women play in the found, founding of, of modern Israel, and in, in what role do they play in Israeli politics today? I mean, Golda Meir, of course, is seen as iconic figure in Israeli history, but... Um, she was asked once, how, how is it to be a woman prime minister? You know what she responded? She said, I've never been a man prime minister, so I don't know. <laughs> um, look... The, the participation of women in, the, in Israeli politics is not different than any other Western country. I think that percentage-wise, the more women uh, represented in Israeli parliament compared to your uh, House of Representatives. Having said that, this is not comfort to me. Uh, if I compare it to what happened in uh, Europe, it started in the Scandinavian countries and in Germany, uh, there was a decision that I think for two or three consecutive terms, every party must have at least 40% of women on their lists. The result is today, after more than two or three, that in most of the Scandinavian countries, you find women in premiership, and uh, women are really uh, highly represented. Uh, In our case... You know, there is a lot to be desired, a lot to be desired, but not just in politics. You know, in this respect, Israel is not different than 
than other, as I said, Western countries. And the whole issue of gender equality uh, is, is one of the items on our agenda, but no, not less than any other OECD country. There is a lot to be done. Look, what we are faced with from Adam and Eve is a cultural embedded reality that has to be changed. And it has to be changed in, in, in a way that it will be implemented and instilled in, in, our, in our culture. So uh, now in Israel, you know, I can uh, take exem- uh, um, exception in the ultra-Orthodox communities where uh, traditionally there is inequality, the, the Orthodox community, and the non-Jewish communities. But again, you see signs of change in all these three. An example, you are, if someone asked about uh, the participation of Arabs in the Israeli armed forces, and they have been relinquished from it. Similarly, until, uh, I don't know, quite recently, any woman who would declare that she's an observant person, have been relinquished from service. And there, there were many women that took advantage of it. Then they declared. We call it declaring. This has changed. It started in the late, 1990, excuse me, in the late 1990s when um, national religious women started to volunteer to civil work. And in the past decade, the number of religious women that go to serve in the army is on the rise against the view of their rabbis. So these are very um, interesting phenomena. There is very solid, interesting uh, um, feminist, religious feminist, religious feminist group very smart. They are led by a number of professors from Barilan University. And, uh, you know, they try very hard in a very patient and tolerant way to go between the drops and substantiate uh, the change. To a large extent, they base it on, uh, on the halakha, on what's written in, you know, in, in, in judgments of rabbis in, in the past. So, uh, bottom line, I don't think that, of course, every nation, every collective has its own characteristics. We have it as well. Uh, but Israel is not different than, I think, many other Western uh, societies. Um, so, so, so many other questions to ask. I, I want to, I um, oh, actually, here's, a, here's an interesting question. Don't all Israeli women serve from age 18 to 20 in the army, approximately? Um, is that, is that yeah, male, male, it used to be three years. It's now um, 28 or 28 months. And women is two, two years. Two years, yeah. Um, you, you, put, you put some personal details in, in the book, and, and maybe you're comfortable with doing that, maybe you're not. But, uh, but I, wanna... I am very comfortable. Okay, good. Um, because in the, one of the, your book opens up with um, um, your father in Jerusalem, uh, in, a, in his neighborhood. He has, he's about to uh, go to a hospital. You, there are so many things that I could mention here. One of the things you mentioned is that, um, in a sense, you in the book say, I didn't really understand the lives of my parents, and I don't know why I didn't. You were, and you were, you were at a crossroads in a way, and you were, yeah. in a sense, this was a chance for you to understand their lives. Yeah. Um, they, they came from Europe, of course. And yeah. 
a lot well, of people killed in the Holocaust. Yeah, both my parents came as pioneers in the 1930s in a uh, Zionist youth movement, and they were among the founders of a kibbutz uh, in the then Palestine. Only uh, when my father was closed, you know, to uh, depart from us, it hit me. I was in, in my early 70s, this, or late 60s. It was, anyway, we hospitalized him, and I had some dialogues with him, and it hit me for the first time that my parents were of the same age of my grandchildren. I have a, do- a granddaughter who is now a student at the university and a grandson who is completing his service in the Israeli Navy. They were in the age of my grandchildren when they departed from their parents. I mean, 22, 23, and, and, and they said goodbye. They corresponded with their families for six years, and this was it. And then their families perished. I grew up without grandparents. I ha- I'm now a grandfather to uh, grandchildren. I never experienced being a grandson. I never knew it. And for me, it was very natural, number one. Number two, I never, you know, I never bothered to, to, to look into the tree of life. What are the, my, my roots? I mean, I was born to the pride of my parents. I was an example of the, that new Jew, the strong new Jew, born in, in, in the land of Israel. Go to defend uh, us. And I wrote in, in my book the, um, some very personal experiences of my own as a paratrooper, of my, of my sons and daughters, etc. But it never dawned on me what I said to you before, that I'm really part of a generation that grew on the seam. And I mention in my book uh, one of, this is, this, this is the, the story that I opened my book with, and in one of my visits to my, my father in, in, in the place where he was hospitalized, he was already, you know, the clouds of dementia of sorts. And then he said to me, he asked me if I have any connections to the Polish embassy. So I said, Dad, what do you mean? He said, well, um, if I had one, maybe we can save his mother and his sister. And it hit me like, you know, uh, a ton of whatever on my, on my head. I almost cried. I said, Dad, you remember how old you are? He said, yeah, I'm, 20, I'm 97. So how old you, your mom would be? So he whispered, ah, yeah. And then after a few minutes again, he said, ah, do I have connections with the Polish embassy? So I said, Dad, you remember the Holocaust? Anyway, it was such a traumatic experience for me. And as I said, uh, it clarified very profoundly to me what my identity is comprised of. I I mentioned many things about my mom uh, in my book. My mom was a leader uh, in the, uh, uh, what you would call women, equality movement in one of the political parties. So 
again, for me, these things were sort of natural. I grew into this. And I decided to insert those autobiographical pieces throughout my book just to underscore that my book is not just uh, theoretical, but it's part of my lifetime, life story. Yeah, and on, I think on your mother's side, there are there uh, several people who went to Argentina from, from Europe. Her two sisters, yes. Yeah. Um, her, her two sisters left for Argentina uh, in 1925, but uh, her two brothers stayed and, you know, they perished. Well, your, your, your book, uh, I, I think a lot of people who know Israel's history know this already, but it's, it's, it's interesting to, to see it um, sprinkled in your book. And that is um, that before the state of Israel existed, there was a lot of talk about um, establishing a Jewish state, say, in Uganda or, or, or elsewhere in Africa or maybe even in South America. Uh, even in you know, places in the United States, there were these uh, small campaigns to establish. Yeah, well, you know, this, this was part of the... Uh the discussion in the early days of Zionism, uh, it were really uh, what we call the political Zionists and the practical Zionists who opposed these ideas and strove um, to migrate to pa- the then Palestine and establish the Jewish state. There was a point, by the way, uh, I think in the 1970s, that Israel was under distress, and someone suggested that we'll, we will declare war on the United States lose the war and become the 51st state and all our problems will be solved. Well, maybe. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I wouldn't do it today, of course, no. Yeah. Um, well, you, um, I know you're at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University, right? Yeah. Um, and I don't know, you know, practically speaking, whether you fly between Israel and the United States, you know, you stay here yeah, for no, three months. It's very but... simple. We spend, my wife and I spend every four or three months here. This is our sixth year that we come to the Hoover uh, where I work on my projects. But the other nine months we're at home and we are looking forward to, get, to go back home this forthcoming Sunday. And you, you mentioned George Shultz, the former Secretary of State yeah. under the Reagan administration who is um, associated with the uh, uh, Institute as well. Yeah, yeah. We, we, we had dinner with George last night and there was another person, Abe Sofer, who was the legal advisor of the State Department. And we exchanged some um, memoirs and memories, how it all started. You know, um, my friendship with George started in 1989, so 30 years ago. That's, that's a long time for a lot of people. Well, the man, the day after tomorrow, is celebrating his 99th birthday. Wow. I almost want to say, let's uh, give George Schultz a happy birthday, but I'll refrain from that. Um, yeah, I said to him, you know, yesterday that in the Jewish tradition, Moses lived for, uh, until 120. And when someone has a birthday, we say, oh, until 120. So I said, George, what do you say to someone who reached 120? Have a nice day. <laughs> that's, a, that's a very Americanism, I, I, I believe. Um, we, we, we have one question from the audience, and, and, and it relates to that um, as, as we head toward the final minutes of our, of our talk here. Um, you, know, you, tr- you travel in academic circles. You travel in political circles. You travel in a lot of circles. Um, you also travel literally to, in airports, and I'm sure you meet a lot of people who, if they find out who you are, will say, oh, you know, they ask you a question. This question is, what, what do Americans um, 
uh, in particular, American Jews most misunderstand about Israel? Very basic question, but it's worth asking. You know, the, the, <laughs> I would, you know, intuitively, I would say, what do Israelis know about Israel? Uh, look, IDI, Israel Democracy Institute, when I founded it, was IDI, Israel Diaspora Institute. I strongly believed then, and I strongly believe today, that uh, alliances between Israel and diaspora Jews, and particularly American and North American Jews, is a strategic asset to the state of Israel. The question, what do they understand, is very complex. Uh, in, in a, if you will, in a professorial way, I would say to you, that each and every one of us in the modern world has several identities. When I get into my car and drive, my identity as a driver, you know, lead me to do A, B, C, or D. I'm, and there are different aspects of my, my identity. There are many things in my identity that make, make me much closer to a Israeli Druze to, uh, uh, than uh, an ultra-Orthodox Jew in Israel. There are many things that make me close to a reformed Jew in Palo Alto. So it's, it's very complex. But to say specifically, um, I think that Israel created a barrier by not letting non-Israeli Jews to participate in the depth of the Israeli discourse about the territories, about the fact that we do not recognize reform and conservative Jews, and take part in it. The ethos was, make Aliyah, migrate to Israel. If you don't, you don't pay taxes, don't interfere, pay money. This was wrong, very wrong. Uh, and I hope that it has changed in recent years. This barrier has to, to break. Uh, you don't need, in the, in the global world that we are in right now, you don't need to be in Israel to take part in the discourse. And you don't need to, to know everything. I don't know everything. But it's, it should be legitimate to non-Israeli Jews to participate in the most troubling issues that, that uh, are in, on our agenda. So, again, I don't know if I responded to uh, the question, uh, I think that if the day will come that we will allow this kind of discourse, many unknown things will be revealed to non-Israeli Jews and the complexity uh, of it. So, I, th I think we have time for one last question, um, and this related related to what you just said. Um, in your book, uh, you you address this, but really, it's I've seen this in news stories today about well, what does it what does it mean to be a Jew? Are you a Jew if your father is Jewish? If your mother is Jewish? You talk about that in a book about well, in Europe, it's it's it, it is the the patri patrilineal, um, which is more common than you know, matrilineal. The matrilineal, yeah, what much more common? But um, but that is a source of contention between American Jews and and the Israeli Orthodox. Not not only yeah, not only in America. Uh, there is, listen, there is a discrepancy in the definition of who is a Jew between the halakha, the religious script, according to which a Jew is only that person whose mother 
is Jewish, and the law of return. I don't want to go into the history in, uh, around it, but according to the law of return, uh, anyone who two of his or her grandparents are Jewish has the right to immigrate and become a citizen of the state of Israel. Now, in the 1990s, you mentioned George Shultz. Thanks to George Shultz, the former Soviet Union opened its gates and one million former Soviet Jews immigrated to Israel. One third of them are not recognized as Jews by the halakha. And this is a, a source of tremendous um, pressure and issue in, in, in our country. So, um, yeah, uh, there, there is definitely a tension around it. Again, let me share with you a story, okay? Um, three, three, four years ago, uh, together with the current president of the state of Israel, you asked me about personalities that I was in touch with. One of them is the current president of the state of Israel. When he was speaker of, of our parliament, we were very close. We tried, he was part of the effort to, to instill a constitution. So I convinced him that we want to start a dialogue about the burning issues between religious and seculars in Israel. So I brought together, formed a group of seven seculars and seven religious, and we discussed what are the major issues. So in one of the meetings, I, I said to the religious people, particularly one ultra-Orthodox, very nice guy, I said, well, let me give you a scenario, a, an imaginary scenario. My son serving the army, and one day he brings home a girlfriend whose mother is not Jewish. They emigrated to, to Israel. They are citizens of the state of Israel. Part of my story, her brother fell in the battlefield as non-Jew, according to you, but according to uh, the law of return. Now, th this is a girlfriend of my son. Will our grandchildren be uh, Jewish? He didn't hesitate a second. He said, absolutely not. So I said to him, well, why do I need to care? Why do I need to care? I asked this imaginary young lady, and she told me that they have mezuzah, you know, that's what Jews put on their do uh, door. Her mother, non-Jewish mother, light the candles every Shabbat. Her brother had bar mitzvah and circumcised. Why do, why do I need to care that you will not recognize them as Jews? She said, well, you don't understand. In, in two generations, their kids and my kids will not be able to, to marry each other. And you create two Jewish peoples. So I said to him, okay, why is this important? Why is this important? To conclude it, I can say to you, when I was much younger, and what we call in, in Hebrew chutzpedik, I would say to my, to my American Jewish audience, what distinguishes between you and me, when I go in the street and someone called me dirty Jew, I take a shower. You make big thing out of it. Uh, for the record, we did hear laughter in the audience. Uh, <laughs> We're hearing it now, and maybe that's a good spot to, uh, to end uh, this conversation on. Um, we want to thank uh, Dr. Carmen, Ari Carmen, whose book is, uh, new book is Building Democracy on Sand Israel Without a Constitution. Um, we uh, please give a round of applause to Ari Carmen. I, I'm Jonathan Coriel. I've been your moderator for tonight's talk, and now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club, the place where you're in the know, is adjourned. <laughs>